is an honor to be back up here, I think. Have you ever been in a situation where you think, that, that will take me 30 minutes to, to go ahead and work on and fix and two weekends later and seven trips to Home Depot, it's halfway done? That's this passage a little bit for me over the last month. I, 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 I saw a lot of treasure in it and it's really, I was telling... Bake before I came up here. There's a there's I, a lot of my heroes that I, I like to listen to preaching would have taken seven or eight sermons on this. So I realize wrapping up preparation this weekend that uh, this is going to be definitely a summary. But I, I I I just trust the Lord. I trust the Spirit in in bringing this. This message to my heart that you know at the last minute I didn't jump ship over over to a, to another passage. So I'm I'm gonna uh, trust the Lord on this and and you do the same and continue to pray. But that that there is there is profit for us here this morning in Second Corinthians chapter three, and we will begin in verse seven. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. In glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more with what is permanent have glory. Will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And pray with me. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Holy Spirit, help us this morning. Father, give us grace. Show us Your mercy given freely to Your people. Lord, show us by working in our hearts this morning Show us the glorious work of the Spirit. 
Lord, help us to be challenged. Help us to be changed. Lord, we are grateful even when we fight it as Your people. We are grateful for the work that You do in our lives. Lord, may You continue by Your Spirit to stir us, to challenge us, to encourage us. Lord, by this hope, would we be bold. In Your name we pray. Amen. We have jumped right into the middle of a storyline here in 2 Corinthians. A bad idea for an itinerant preacher, but one I went ahead and have done because there's some, some glorious truth here. But it, it just, and it just happens when you don't preach often. You, you gotta jump in somewhere. Okay, so you jump in this passage in 2 Corinthians, you gotta bring the congregation with you, and if you're unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, here is a very brief rundown. The Corinthians, most of you are probably aware, are a, an absolute mess of a church. If Rockport was going to pick a church from the culture to compare ourselves to, hopefully we would pick the Corinthians. Okay? We would look better standing beside the church at Corinth. Okay? And that's not how we do things. But that is the mess of the church at Corinth. Okay? Paul, because of how messy the Christians were at, at Corinth, Paul had to be very bold and abrupt with his message to the Corinthians. And that came off as uh, they were offended. They, it, it was stepping on their toes nearly every page of this letter. Even as you see Paul express his love and express his tears over them over and over again, it was a very bold it was a very abrupt message. They've taken offense. The Corinthians didn't really like it. We don't like it when our, our toes are stepped on. They said, in person, Paul, you were gracious. You were actually nice in person. You were loving. You were very pastoral. Why in the world when you write us these letters are you a mean, arrogant jerk? It's judgmental and lacking in grace. That was their tone. What we call 2 Corinthians, Paul is spending a lot of time defending his ministry and defending his apostleship and, and defending his reason for having to be so bold with the messy Christians of Corinth. But he is going to dire uh, stretches here to show that his ministry is in fact from God. It is not uh, some gifting that he is boasting in, some special ability, but he is going to great lengths to show that this is a spirit-driven ministry and this, Corinthians, is for your own good from God. This people were very hurt. They were very offended. They were very stepped upon. And it was hard for them to see that God was actually using Paul to transform them. It's important to know that Paul here isn't necessarily defending himself against false teachers. 
Okay, he's he's not defending himself against some of the people that crept in or or some of his rivals of the day. He will do that. He does that in several of his letters. He even does that some in Second Corinthians. But here, that is not his point at the beginning of his defense. So if we get if we get caught up in that, that okay, he is defending another false teaching here. We're we're kind of let off astray of what he is actually doing uh, pastorally with the people with the church at Corinth. Rather, Paul is defending his reasons for speaking so boldly to them. He's speaking boldly to the Corinthians in correction and rebuke, and he is giving a defense theologically of why he is able to do this and why it is for their good. So Paul attempting attempting to justify his boldness to the church at Corinth brings forth some staggering comparisons that that had to be offensive even to believing Jews. It had to it had to rattle them. And you want to understand why Christians can be bold, why ministry of Christians can be bold. If we want to understand how the gospel can be bold as we use it in our lives together for one another. If we want to if we want to understand Paul's confidence in this actually being the ministry of God that, that the Spirit doesn't just save us and leaves us in a place, but is actually using His truth to step on our toes, to push us along, to transform us, then we need to understand here a difference between two eras. We are speaking of an old covenant and a new covenant this morning. Paul says we need to understand a difference between these two eras. You need to understand the difference between two glories. You need to understand the difference between two veils, you will see. And Paul says, let me defend my boldness and my words to you that Christ actually convicts, that He actually changes us, that He doesn't just leave us in our sin, that we should be concerned about remaining sin, and let me push you on. I am confident that God has given me this ministry. I want you to be confident that it is given, He has given me this ministry, and that it is the Spirit who is propelling you more to the image of Christ. In no boasting in human terms is Paul saying, trust me. He's saying, in the Spirit, trust me. In the work of the Spirit, trust me that this ministry for your good is from the Spirit. And so Paul says, let's compare a few things. Let me show you that the ministry of This boldness is sufficient. I am not sufficient, but this ministry from the Spirit is sufficient. Look at a couple verses before our text even. Look at verses 5 and 6. It gives a little bit more of the context. Not that we are sufficient, Paul says, of the ministers and apostles uh, preaching and teaching this gospel and saying hard things. We're not sufficient ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The sufficiency is not in ourselves. It's not in the uh, uh, gifting of ministers, Paul says, but it's from God. And we have been made 
we have been made sufficient for ministry of the new covenant. I will even add, not just elders and pastors, but God's people ministering to one another with God's truth and God's word are not sufficient ourselves, but have made, been made sufficient by His Spirit to work in one another's lives, to speak truth into one another's lives for, a, for His glory and for our growth. So, we can be bold, Paul says, with our speech because our ministry is life-giving. Our ministry is life-giving. We aren't pulling out the tablets of stone that Moses walked down the mountain with. And we're not ministering to each other with the tablets of law anymore, but we have the Spirit. We are given the Spirit and the Spirit is life-giving. How and why? How and why do we minister with this boldness? Because the Spirit is the giver of life. The Spirit's not of the Old Covenant, not of the Law, not of the letter as Paul puts it. The letter kills, Paul says it, a bold statement. But the Spirit gives life. Let me go ahead and give you... A spoiler here that just kind of helps us to see this whole passage. Ministry to Christians. When we speak of ministering to one another, when we speak of a, a, a pastor or a preacher to a congregation, or, or we speak of pastoral counseling to a group or to an individual or to a married couple, or when we speak of, of Christian parents to, to a Christian child, or when we're, when we're talking about teaching a class on, on godliness or what, whatever it may be, ministry to each other in the t- context of 2 Corinthians here can be bold. It can be bold. Why can it be bold? And it's simple. This is the spoiler. But this is what we need to to have underneath this, this foundation. We have the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We can be bold with God's truth to one another because He has given us the Spirit and the promises with the Spirit that He is faithful to complete the work in us that He has started. We have not been just changed by the Spirit, but given the Spirit. And when you don't preach often, you have a tendency, my wife says, to beat a dead horse. So I'll stop right there. And I'll say, keep that truth close. We have the Spirit. So we can warn each other. We can lovingly correct one another. We can rebuke sin. We can exhort one another to turn from error, to turn from sin back to Christ, not because we're arrogant, not because we're being judgmental, but because we've been born again and we have the Spirit. And the goal of that Spirit is to transform us. And to transform us into the image of Christ. And that is glorious. It is a glorious truth. It's painful. It hurts. And at times it's exhausting. But the ministry of the Spirit is glorious. And it's messy. And it's not just messy for a church at Corinth that we can look at and be like, man, we are way further along than they are. It's messy for everyone of these imperfect congregations on this side of eternity because that's all there are. Imperfect congregations. 
But the ministry of the Spirit, church, is glorious. And Paul, in our text this morning, is going to show how glorious. We go back to verse 7. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. It must far exceed it. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. Indeed, in this case, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. We have presented here two glories. Paul presents us with two glories. We have a lesser glory that is old. We have a greater glory. And notice the structure of these verses in Paul's arguments. Paul is using a pattern here of if this, then that. If this is true, then how much greater truth is this? If this is true, or if this is the case, how much more is this the case? And we have three pairs of, what I'll say, uh, ministries. Of three pairs of ministry being um, shown here in its context to, to give us a degree of glory in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Now, stay with me here. We see a ministry of death. If you look at verse 7, that ministry of death versus the ministry of the Spirit. I'll say the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit is so closely connected with life, you can see how those are opposite there. A ministry of death versus a ministry of life. Then you see, we have a ministry, there's a ministry of condemnation. Now, I don't think these are happy words and happy ministries that any of us want a part of today. A ministry of death and condemnation. But we'll get to that. That's versus a ministry of righteousness. Verse 9. Then we have this ministry that's temporary, this old covenant ministry, versus a ministry that is eternal. This new covenant that is eternal. So first, a ministry of death. A ministry of death as one carved in stone, called letters of stone. Paul takes us to Exodus 34 where Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, with the law. We call the Ten Commandments. It's that covenant. And it's carved in stone and it's actually the second set of tablets when we get to Exodus 34. If you remember a couple chapters early in Exodus, Moses comes down, the people are, are worshiping a golden calf. He is angry. He breaks the tablets. This is Moses after he's already been back up uh, to the mount with God and he comes back down and this is the picture that we have in Exodus 34. And he goes back up he gets another set. Lots of things happen in between that. And Paul is calling the old ministry of the law, the Torah, a ministry of death. Now, 
that does not make you popular and gain you friends even among Jewish Christian circles. That is a bold statement for Paul to say that that was the ministry of death. How can he say that? Well, how can he say that it only produces death because it has to be kept perfectly? It has to be kept perfectly for it to give life. If you're going to have life from the law, you have to obey every single part of it. So he's not saying that the law itself is just death. He's not saying that the law is even bad. We know the law to be perfect, holy, right, just, good. We would even say beautiful. The law is a perfect reflection of the character of God. But to its effect, it is a ministry of death, Paul calls it. There is only death to be gotten from the law, from the ministry of the law. And those are hard words. But for us to be sustained in life by the law is literally humanly impossible. It's humanly impossible. Even if we were to keep 99.9% of the Torah in that 0.01% that we fail in, we are doomed to death. It is condemnation. That is to draw a giant dividing line in between the holiness of God and the sin that we are corrupt with. The law, the Torah, the Old Covenant is a ministry... Of death. What is the punishment for sin for obeying or for, for failing to obey the law? It is death. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. That's been one of our catechism questions. What is the punishment for sin? The punishment for sin is death. The law itself says that. Deuteronomy twenty seven, cursed is the man who doesn't uphold this law by carrying out every bit of it. It is a ministry of death. The law shows us that sin is also a transgression, a willful violation against the Holy God. Paul says in Romans that the law is what shows our sin to actually be a transgression, to be a rebellion against God. And that the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath because it brings death because we can't obey it. And we have no excuse because of the law for our rebellion now. But we can't obey it. The, the law further leads to death as we try to twist it. Think of all the ways that we try to make it look like we can actually uphold a system of rules or a law by itself. We try to build upon it. We try to make it look like we are actually keeping it. We try to uh, master the law. Right? We see all throughout church history, all throughout Scripture, stories of people trying to master the law instead of God mastering their hearts. There's a way to twist, and there's a way to change, and there's a way to, to boast in our pride and our own doing, and to be fooled ourselves into thinking that we can get life, that we can earn life through it. It's impossible. It's impossible because the law has zero power to transform the sinner. Zero power. In Romans 8, Paul says, God has done by sending Christ what the law weakened by flesh, that is weakened by our disobedience and failure to be able to obey, could not do. The law cannot produce anything in us for us to go back to be effective in obeying it. The law cannot produce it. 
The law only works if you keep it. There was only one man, the God-man, who has ever kept it perfectly. So Paul here says this ministry of death, it's glorious. It's glorious because the law is holy, perfect, and good as, as God is holy, perfect, and good. But it is hopeless, absolutely hopeless in all of its glory to give life. Now keep that one with you. That's a theme in all of these points here in this passage. Even what is glorious can be hopeless because there is a greater glory. There is a greater glory of the ministry of the Spirit. Verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Yes, Moses' face lit up and stayed shining as a result of the glory of God that he experienced on Sinai. But this was a dangerous glory. This was a, a, a hopeless glory. One that was coming to an end, the text says. One that had to be covered up because it displayed an end that only led to death. But we know the Spirit to be the giver of life. It is new life. It is second birth. How much more glorious that we don't look at a tablet of things that we will over and over fail again, but the Spirit comes and changes our hearts and actually writes in it on our hearts instead of tablets of stone from Jeremiah 31. He actually writes the law on our hearts, which is to say that the Spirit works in us that we would not desire to rebel against God's holy law, but that we would desire to do it. The Lord says, I will put my instruction in them. I will give them my spirit instead of tablets of stone that will fade. I will write it on their hearts. This is the giving of the spirit. And that should encourage you, church, because the spirit has not left us. In other words, we have not been left to our own devices, to our own intelligence, to our own feeling around, but we have the spirit. And look how closely the ministry of the Spirit resembles the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you get separated from from Christ and the Gospel and the Spirit pushing you to Christ, you get out and get some wacky, charismatic stuff. Okay, The pages of Scripture don't show us going uh, way away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Christ. Matter of fact, if you look at the uh, ending of this section, um, it was so hard for me to wrap it up because it's like he's saying the Lord is the Spirit. He's saying uh, the, the veil is removed by the Spirit, but the veil is only removed by looking to Christ. And it's like, is, is the Lord the Spirit or is the Lord Christ? This Trinitarian uh, doctrine is... Is, is giant and mind-blowing. But you can't separate the work of the Spirit from the work of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that that Spirit is constantly pointing you to and guiding you to and, and pushing you to that you would behold Christ. That we would behold Christ. Paul also contrast the ministry of condemnation with the ministry of righteousness. Now quickly, these are legal terms. These are courtroom terms, if you will. Judicious terms. 
Again, we have a ministry that is negative. It has a negative effect. It's condemnation. And it's still regarded as having glory, just like the ministry of um, the ministry of death. There is still a, a, a certain aspect of glory. Even though the law results only in condemnation, it was glorious. Because God is right and just. There is nothing wrong with the law. It's just not effective to do anything but condemn you because you can't keep it. Even in this condemnation, and especially I would say, don't separate out God's glory in His judgment as not being glorious. I would say even in His condemnation, and in this context, especially in His condemnation, God is perfect. He is right. He is just to condemn. And He is glorious for doing so if we understand more and more the depths of the character of God. And yet God in His desire to save and His desire to give life, we see that there is a greater glory of righteousness. This is not a ministry of making us righteous. We are becoming by the Spirit, praise the Lord, more like Christ. We are not turning into Christ. That's a heresy for another day. We are becoming more like Christ by the ministry of the Spirit. We are not being made righteous though, as being made right like Christ on this side of eternity, but we are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. That is to say that the ministry of condemnation is this is what you need to do to live. You can't. Is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid it all. You're going to fail, but His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And by the work of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Him. You are declared righteous. Work that we had nothing to do with as we were speaking about in the Lord's Supper. This again is the work of the Spirit to point us to the work of Christ on our behalf. And this glory of righteousness surely surpasses the glory of condemnation. Amen? If we better celebrate the righteousness of Christ that has become ours on our behalf, on, on His work, the behalf of His work by our faith alone. Verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. This glory of the gospel of righteousness, not of our own, has surpassed of course, this glory of condemnation. In verse 11 then, we see that in God's providence, the glory of the letter as a ministry of death and of condemnation was never meant to last. It was never meant to last. That's why we call it an era. Yet, its purpose... So we can't say its uh, ministry was exactly uh, merciless. It did have mercy. 
It had lots of mercy. It had grace even. Its purpose was to point us to something that was eternal. To point us to something that could save, that was never intended to point it back to itself. It was only meant to show a standard that we could not keep. We were powerless to keep. But yet, it pointed us to something that would last forever. Verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more with what is permanent will it have glory. And this is our hope. This is the hope of the new covenant church. That the ministry of death, of condemnation, these two things being the effects of the law, this is what the law effects. This is what the law does. The death or the ministry of death is a lesser glory. And in a sense, a temporary glory that prepared the way for a much greater glory. The Spirit of the Lord bringing transformation to our hearts, to our hardened hearts by the eternal truth of the gospel. And since we have this hope, since we have this hope that we have been and are being transformed by the Spirit. Since, hopefully church, if you are in Christ this morning, if your faith is in Christ, you know that you have been and are being transformed by the Spirit since we have a ministry far more glorious, we can be bold with this truth. We can be bold with this truth. That is the point of this passage and one of the central arguments of all of 2 Corinthians that we have the Spirit, a greater, more glorious ministry. Therefore, since we have the Spirit, since the Spirit doesn't lead us astray, we can be bold. We can be bold with God's truth. This isn't here, however, speaking of the case of, of, of our witness necessarily being bold. Again, many places in Scripture talks about that, even in 2 Corinthians. And there is a, a, a little bit of that maybe you could say. But, but we're not talking primarily here of our bold witness. Our witness should be bold. We're talking about a boldness of speech that effects change. We are talking about knowing and wanting and desiring the truth of God to be bold in our lives that we may become more like Christ. A boldness of speech that affects further change in the heart and a conviction of sin. This is the context of Corinthians, right? Remember, keep the context in mind. The Corinthians were messed up. They were messed up. Local churches scattered all throughout this country, including Rockport Baptist Church, are messed up still because we have the flesh that clings so tightly. We need the bold truth to continually be pressed into us by the Spirit that we may be changed into the image of Christ. 
This is what we should desire, church. Even in its suffering and in its painful state, we should desire this. Paul is saying, I'm not beating you up with the law over your head. I'm not preaching law, law, law to you, Corinthians. I know you're messy and I know every page I've just sounded like I'm condemning you. But wake up! This is of the Spirit. This is of the Spirit. Not beating you over the head with the law. I'm showing you that life in Christ. Life with the Spirit brings about a change in behavior, a change in character, and that boldness that we should desire is what enables us us to have a bold witness. There is a change in character brought about from a boldness of the truth of Christ in our lives. Simply put, we should look different. We should be Distinct And Paul is confident as he defends this ministry in the Spirit. Paul is confident of this because Christians have the Spirit and the Spirit doesn't leave us in our own spots that we started in to be transformed by ourselves. And it rubs Corinthians the wrong way. It rubs us the wrong way, if we're honest. It's hard to be criticized and corrected. Paul hates the tension produced by his bold writing. He's in tears, you can see, in his writing. He hates it. But it's worth it. And he desires that more than his relationship would be mended with the Corinthians, he desires for Christians, messy Christians, to grow in godliness more in the image of Christ. Paul knows that God has made him sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant, even if that is challenging and steps on toes but for the spirits, one of his main jobs to make us worthy of the calling. It's worth it for Paul to do this. And you better believe the spirit-inspired letter from Paul was written all in love. Just as we are to take God's truth in love. This is a boldness to evoke change, not to tread lightly with. And I'll be... Very quick here, Paul in verse 13 compares this new era, this new covenant boldness to that of Moses in the old covenant. If you look at verse 13, not like Moses, Paul says, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, if we went back to Exodus 34, we get a picture of what Paul is saying. Paul uh, has to come down with a veil. The people are scared. Right? Aaron's terrified. And they, and they like leave Paul. And Paul has to call them all back. And, they, and he's going to command, uh, give them commands of the Lord. Everything that God has given to them. And he's going to do this still without the veil on. But they're absolutely terrified. Okay? Then uh, Moses 
realizes that he's going to have to cover up his face. So Moses' face, because of the glory of God with his interaction, actually it's, it's when uh, uh, Moses says, I'll show you my glory. Or Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you your glory, but you're not going to be able to handle it. I'm actually going to put you in a rock and you're just, I'm just going to pass by and you're just going to get the glory of the back of me. And that alone is going to be hard to survive. And he did. He lived to tell about it. But he comes down. His face is glowing. His face is shining. From there on with his interactions, he had to have a veil. Okay? A bizarre thing. And why does Paul make this comparison? What does he say? In the context here of a ministry, of an apostleship, we're not like Moses. Moses was covering up an outcome. And we actually have a commentary in the New Testament for this situation in the Old Testament. The people were afraid. Afraid of the glory of God in a sense. It was dangerous. The glory of God outside of Christ is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. The people were afraid. They couldn't handle it. It was His glory and judgment and and perfection and it had to be veiled. Moses as the mediator being imperfect himself couldn't even deal with the full force of God's glory. But he survived it. The people of Israel in their heart and hearts, it tells us, could not survive it. They would stay in fear of it, yet still with hardened hearts. This glory shown on the face of Moses didn't transform. That's the point of the veil. It it was only going to be dangerous. But as astounding as the sight was, it could not transform. It was not a transforming glory. There was no hope by gazing at this glory. Notice even in the text, if you go back and read Exodus 34, he would take it off when he went back to talk to people. Then he would put it back on. When he was giving the commands of the Lord, he would take it off. It almost was to be closely associated with that law and the command of the Lord that you could not keep. That was to provide fear. But it wasn't to be shown as the end. It wasn't to be shown as the ultimate glory. Paul says in verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only, only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ. There is a veil of the heart, that the hardness, that rebellious heart that was all of our hearts before we came to Christ before we turn to Christ. Moses wore a veil to hide a glory that wasn't ultimate. They weren't to see this glory as final. The veil that he wore was because their hearts were hardened because actually they had their own veil, Paul says. They were veiled over their hearts. That's the hardness. So they wouldn't think that this shiny face, that this law was their hope. Moses wore a veil. And that's to know that they couldn't deal with the veil of the hardness of their hearts. Only in Christ is the veil, that hardness taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over 
their hearts. Here's the picture of salvation and the Christian life as we close in these last three verses. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Connect verse 17, that freedom there that you see. Verse 12, that bold, that boldness. This is what we're speaking of. This freedom to grow in Christ. This freedom to be transformed. This boldness that we welcome into our hearts that we would be pushed closer to Christ. It's a correlation. It's a connection. And what is the connection between all of this? It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. Concrete hope. Paul uses hope in that sense of concrete, not wistful thinking concrete hope of the Spirit and our destiny in the Spirit makes us bold and gives us freedom. A freedom not found in obedience, but that gives power for obedience and desire for obedience. A freedom to behold the glory of the Lord not in the face of Moses, but to behold and be transformed by the glory of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And to be transformed by Christ. May we have tough skin, church. May we have tough skin as our toes get stepped on by the truths of Scripture, knowing that the Spirit is transforming us and preparing us for glory, bringing us from one degree of glory to the next. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, don't look at something ineffective that has faded thinking that if you can do enough of this you can be brought closer to God. That you can somehow earn a right standing with God. Look to Christ. Turn to Christ. And believer here this morning, don't think that if you profess Christ like the Corinthians that now you're done. Paul, leave us alone. We're Christians. We gather every Sunday. We get it. Leave us alone. The Spirit is far from done in your lives. Praise the Lord. See the glory in the Spirit's continued effort and work in your hearts. Amen. Gracious Lord, we are so quick to cry out to You and say, please don't leave us on our own. And we confess also that sometimes we're surprised and shocked when You get in there and You painfully work and transform us. And we want to be left alone. Lord, would we see that Your bold truth, that this truth to live worthy of the calling that Paul had continued to impress on the Corinthians, this truth 
is continued to be pressed into us by the Spirit. The Spirit is far from done with us. Lord, would you help us to see that? Thank you for your help, Lord. In your name, amen.